To be honest, this is the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. Hi, and welcome to Forest of the Future. If you are also interested in what makes Roger Young so excited, stay tuned. This is the podcast series where we look into how innovation in FSC can help us save our forests. We all know that forests play a key role in combating the climate change and the biodiversity crisis that we're facing. In this series, we explore how innovation, especially within tech tools, but also more broadly, can help us protect our forests and support the mission of FSC, which is to ensure responsible management of our forests worldwide. In this episode, we will be looking into how gathering wood samples around the world can help fight illegal logging and can help companies perform better due diligence. This is the project that gets Roger all excited, and it gets me excited too, because FSC is really trying to reinvent how wood samples can pay, play a role in timber origin verification, and we have strong allies in the project. I've invited Roger, along with our own Supply Chain Integrity Director, Phil Guillory, for a joint interview on the project and its potential impact. Welcome, Roger and Phil. Could we start off by you, Roger, just introducing yourself? Yes, hello. My name is Roger Young. I am the CEO of AgriOS Lab UK. I'm based in the north of England, and we run a laboratory that can do authentication analysis of timber. And our particular expertise uses stable isotope ratio analysis to determine the origin of anything that was once living. So we have a background in food. We do beef and vegetables and fruit. And for the last 12 years, we've been exploring how those technologies can be used to determine the origin of traded timber. And how does that then work? So that works because everything that's living or has been living will take out of the ground or take in from the air elements of hydrogen, oxygen in water, or carbon um, from carbon dioxide in plants. And they incorporate it through their metabolism into their constituents, so uh, into the lignin and the cellulose of trees. And it was discovered way back in the 60s and before, but it was really experimented hard by a guy called Bowen in the States, that the ratios of the isotopes of natural elements so hydrogen, for example, comes as hydrogen and heavy hydrogen, which is called deuterium, and oxygen comes as oxygen 16 and oxygen 18. Those ratios of the two isotopes tends to be geographically specific, which means, for example, that water in Denmark is measurably different from water in France or the Congo Basin. And this applies also to nitrogen from the air or carbon from carbon dioxide, all of which are incorporated in the case we're talking about, which is timber. So by having an appropriate database of, for example, timber from a location, you can take a piece of timber, for example, from furniture, and it could be very old furniture, it doesn't have to be new, and you can break it down, you can select out the carbon and the nitrogen and the oxygen and the hydrogen, and analyze the ratios in the test sample, and compare it to a database and you can confirm if the declared origin, if it was declared for country X, you can say if you've got a database for country X, you can say that's true or that's not true. That sounds like a perfect bridge for me to, to ask you, Phil, to just introduce yourself and to explain what World Forest ID then is. Yeah, hi, I'm Phil Guillory of FSC, uh, from FSC International. I'm the FSC Supply Chain Integrity Director. 
And so we have been working in FSC um, on supply chain, chain integrity issues for about the last 10 years. And we started using Wood ID technologies um, early on, mostly in paper to identify fibers that were um, from tropical origins. But then we started to do it in with um, species of wood products. And we found that really valuable for, uh, for addressing uh, some integrity issues and for addressing false claims in the FSC system. But as we as we um, learned, we found that more and more um, the species identification was really important. But what would be really helpful is if we could know where the wood was harvested, where it came from. And so through our work in this area and working with wood anatomists, uh, we're were introduced to um, stable isotope ratio analysis, and and that's how I, uh, FSC started to work with AgroIsolab, and looking at, at at this work and how FSC could adopt it and use it not only in quality control method, but also how could we use it potentially uh, to improve our system, improve our ability to uh, address false claims, but also in the long run use it in in our chain of custody system. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that. When we say wood ID, we mean wood identification, first of all. And then when we say world forest ID, we mean identification of the world's forest. But what is that project? Could you explain that a bit, Phil? Yeah. Uh, so the World Forest ID project was uh, was started a few years ago, um, and it's a collaboration between AgroIsolab, uh, Rogers Organization, and FSC. World Resources Institute, the U.S. Forest Service International Program, and uh, Kew Botanical Gardens in London. And the idea was that, uh, I think as Roger can explain and, and uh, to us, is that the stable isotope ratio analysis, genetic analysis, even wood, uh, wood anatomy identification using wood anatomy identification, they're all comparative sciences. So they have to be, when you, when you want to test a table uh, if it's if it where it's come from or what species it is you have to compare it to something and so it's really important that you have something to compare it to and so what's lacking is that we do not have the wood samples that are geo-referenced that we have the exact locations that we can compare them to so we can use the stable isotope ratio analysis and other techniques so one of the things that came about at the start a few years ago was the recognition that FSC really offered a unique uh, role in being able to build the databases of these reference libraries of the wood to be able to go to our FSC certified forest managers and get uh, samples of wood that they are actually producing and selling and get them from the from the stump so we could actually have samples that were geo-referenced. And so our uh, what we're trying to do with the World Forest ID project is build this global database of geo-referenced wood samples, um, which has never been done to the extent that we're doing it. And, and we've been working in uh, really tr- pilot testing this in the United States, in Peru, in Gabon, and the Solomon Islands in Papua New Guinea. But it's not only just to build that wood reference library, it's to be able to be able to then give access to that uh, to those wood samples to labs such as uh, AgroIsolab to support the other forensic laboratories that are doing these analysis to be able to use these wood samples and be able to test it and use it and also share those results 
in what you know what we consider in a sense of an open source database i mean that's one of the really critical parts for fsc is that this is open source it's not just agroisolab that's using these wood samples it's any credible lab out there in the world Mm-hmm. Who could collect those samples? Could anybody just go into a forest and collect those samples? So just just to scoot back a little bit, one of the things we discovered when we set out to do this, uh, it, we set off on a platform. Uh, in our world, we were doing food. And if you wanted to build a database of tomatoes or strawberries or even something more complicated like pork or beef, we We've done it for 20 years. It's relatively easy. You go to all of the strawberry growers and you get strawberries. You go to abattoirs and get meat from from the beef farms. But it turns out that it's much, much, much tougher to get appropriate samples of timber from appropriate forests. For example, the average rainforest has about 200 species per hectare. So you're going to have to collect a large number of samples. And although there are a lot of animals and a lot of strawberries in the world, there are far more trees. And how do you do that? And who owns the the land? And how do you get to it? So getting samples turned out to be quite a big deal. Um, And one of the things that we we needed to do when we did that was to, um, one of the main objectives of WIFID was to understand how hard it is to build these databases. And when you, let me, yeah, let me just, when you say WIFID, you mean World Forest ID. So that's the abbreviation we're using, yeah. (laughs) I beg your pardon, let's call it World Forest ID. So one of the deals that we we described to ourselves, one of the, the precepts when we set off was that World Forest ID was going to try to find out at least all the questions that needed to be answered that had to be answered to do these databases, build these databases, even if we didn't get all the answers, we had to have the questions. And one of the questions was, who do we, who does collect these samples? And initially, we thought, well, anybody can collect them. And it turns out that because the users, one of the primary users of this database, apart from FSC uh, and the corporate sector, are going to be enforcement. So we built the database within the legal constraints of the way that data should be managed the way that the samples should be managed, such that they should be sustainable within a court action if enforcement wants to use the database. And the enforcement lawyers in Europe and the US have been very strong to make sure that the participants, we call them um, trusted partners who collect samples, are trusted. So what we've developed is a process and a, a process and a protocol by which we evaluate those who wish to collect for us. And essentially, what we're asking them is to look at a checklist that we've developed and to describe to us how they would mitigate the sorts of uh, issues that would arise that would make them not suitable. For example, a very simple one would be, have they got permission to be in the place where they're collecting samples? If they have not, they can't be there. We wouldn't allow them. Uh, Are they trained? Do they know if they're going to collect a particular species? Do they know how to recognize that as a growing tree? And if they don't have those expertise, then we we can't be using them. But the glory of using FSC is you have all of those expertise. You have people all over the world who are in forests and they're experts. So the marriages of, of World Forest ID and the cooperation of FSC has been magnificent. I think to add to that uh, is I think it's very important is that the when we go and work in in FSC forests across the world, we're only working with those who uh, volunteer and are willing to uh, let us come into the forest. It's not a requirement within FSC, but we've had a 
really amazing support from forest managers in all countries where we've worked. The, the realization is that you know that if someone if they're selling their wood and someone is then pretending that they are uh, purchasing from them and they really aren't that it's really to their advantage to be participate and to help us build these databases and what we do is we make sure that the concessions the names the locations are not available to the public when we say it's open source it's only open to the forensic labs and they don't know the names of the forests that where they're collected they just have the, the GPS locations. So we're trying very hard to, you know, protect the, um, the interests of the, of the forest managers and make it something that's really positive and can help them protect their markets. Because I guess if you were able to go online and see, oh, there's a there, here's a really valuable tree, uh, an old grown teak, for example, then that would actually essentially give you a map. If you were somebody who was uh, doing illegal logging, that would give you a map of where to go to cut down some really valuable timber. So I guess that's why. Yeah, and that's really critical that we protect that, and so we do not share that information. Um, but we do. You know, we 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 happily share uh, the concessions and the companies we work with if they're willing. So we we have really great partnerships in all of the countries we've worked with, and and that's that's really exciting to see. So when when it makes sense to the companies, we are happy to to let them uh, promote what we're doing and promote it as mm -hmm. well. Does that mean that any forest owner who's FSC certified could go and collect their own samples and submit them for for testing? No, we, we don't. I mean, anyone can definitely contact us and participate. But one of the things is we really want to be sure that we would like to work through, for example, the certification bodies and the certification body and the auditors when they go and do their yearly audit would collect the samples. We also... Um, would uh, set up expeditions when when we have to collect many many samples from a given forest. So we do that in FSC. We we work with with consultants to do that. Uh, but we really um, think it's really important that there's again a third party independent and the auditors and and teams going in will give the credibility for those sample collections. Mm -hmm. I guess that comes back to the the whole law enforcement again as well, right? Because if you want something to be able to hold up as evidence in court, it needs to be independently collected. I guess. Yeah. And that's what, and that's really important. And that's, I think, again, where the FSC can play a really great role because we can coordinate that. So we've not only, you know, we can, we have people in the field, we have our net, network partners in each country that we work with, and that gives us the ability to set up these independent collections. And we've even collected, for example, in Gabon, we've collected in FSC concessions and we've collected in non-FSC concessions and even national parks because that's what we want to build the database of not just FSC concessions but do it across the landscape to be most useful. Mm -hmm. So Roger if I come back to you for a bit if we look ahead uh, what do you see as the possibilities for World Forest ID? What's it what is it that this whole project can change? So the thing that's exciting is that uh, from the instigation of uh, supply chain audit and certification, which FSC has led, there has been a move from very little traceability to documentation and uh, chain of custody audit processes, which you are the world's expert in. Um, 
what we now have is a way to add to certification and audit a completely independent system which uh, can be uh, deliberately ignorant of the supply chain except in two regards that we can have an end product which could be a piece of timber a piece of lumber sawn timber or it could be a finished product like a piece of flooring uh, or a piece of furniture or a piece of plywood a composite product and that has a declared origin and a declared species because most regulatory purposes, processes require that of the trader when they place it on the market or when they export it or when they import it. So that's one piece. And the other piece we need to know is uh, the location of where they claim it is coming from, from those documentations. And we don't really mind what goes in between. We don't mind who are the sub-partners in it. We don't care about the nodes of that. People like FSC have got some wonderful processes for tracking that. But what we can do is we can then compare the finished product and its claimed origin, which might be a long way away from where it's marketed. It might be a long way in time as well. It might have been harvested as a tree two or three years before, and it might have been processed in the in-between time. If we have a database of that declared origin, and the wonderful thing is that most regulations now say we want you to declare not just where it was processed, but where it was grown, we can compare that finished product signature, the stable isotope uh, signature of the finished product across a number of um, elements, five elements in fact, with a database if we have it of the original uh, location. And if they match, we can then believe that whole supply chain is true and that the participants have been honest in the way that they operate. Mm -hmm. If they don't so match, we know that there's some non-compliance somewhere. We don't know where that non-compliance is, but something is wrong. And it can now be used, and to answer your question, the excitement for us is we've now got the ability to know how we can direct scarce resources to investigate a supply chain, because we can have completely separate, independent evidence of the truth or not of the declared uh, authentication of a, of a sample. How big a task is such a stable isotope test? Is it like how long does that take? How how much does like how is it very expensive? Is it inexpensive? What's the workload involved? So it's uh, it's comparable in price to genetic analysis. So we're talking uh, five to seven hundred dollars a sample. It takes around two weeks. Um, it takes a lot of skill. We have 11 mass spectrometers, and each of them costs over $100,000 each. Uh, we've spent 20 years learning how to, to interpret the results because the results are a statistical process, which are quite complicated. Uh, but we've developed and we've patented devices for extracting the elements. Um, and in principle, what we've really tried to do is not just to do research level analysis, but what we call service delivery analysis. If you're supplying an organization who want a result, they don't want it in three months. They want it in two weeks. Uh, and we, they want it in volume. They want to be able to send us 50 samples, get an answer in three weeks or two weeks. We can do it. But that takes a different sort of structure of a laboratory to a research laboratory. So what we do is we have a number of mass spectrometers working in parallel. One will be doing carbon, another one will be doing oxygen, another one will be, be doing hydrogen and so on. So that we can run through the system and we have 26 people in total that will do all of that. And on top of that, we then need to do the interpretation afterwards, which might take four or five days to interpret all those different signature ratios to the database with a number of statistical models and then plot it and produce a report. Um, it is a little bit protracted, 
It's not a binary answer. What we'll do is give an answer that says your sample is 98% typical for the database. Therefore, we can believe the declaration. Or we can say it's above 95% not of that database. Doesn't mean it doesn't come from there. They could Somebody could argue it's an outlier. Maybe there's a place in that forest you didn't sample, but there's a, a signature. And our answer to that is, well, let's go and get some more samples. But it gives you reason when you get that sort of result to start to investigate and maybe use some other systems. Now you can start to look at the paperwork. Now you can look at the chain of custody behavior and see if there's any gaps there that could indicate that there is something wrong. And just to add to that is I think listeners might think, well, we're proposing that every, you know, we replace FSE chain of custody with a $600 test and how expensive that would be. And that's not at all what we're proposing is that we're saying that this in high risk situations um, you could, um, when you find some risk or when you find something of concern, you can do these tests and use these tests in the sense of saying you could collect samples, uh, you know, through the supply chain and then based on some other evidence, then conduct a test. And if uh, certificate holders know that they're going to be tested, this then will help provide uh, more integrity and credibility to the FSC system. Well, I'm, I'm guessing as well that if you're a company and you're trading a lot of of, uh, of materials, which could be of risk, it could be a new thing that you could add on to your existing due diligence systems and say, well, we will periodically uh, do a sample that we test and our suppliers won't know when we do that sample. They just know that we do them. And then that's an extra added layer of, of due diligence. So there's a, there's a really good permutation of that, which we've yeah. used. We took it from vegetables, and we call it ISO archive. Uh, you'll appreciate one of the issues about World Forest ID is that we've got a, a long way to go. I should say something. We, we need to just unwind something. The difference between World Forest ID collections and all the existing Xylaria, like Q has, Q has 43,000 samples going back 260 years. The Smithsonian has tens of thousands, but none of those existing Xylaria are geolocated. So this Could is you a, just explain what a Xylaria is? Xylaria <laughs> is a collection. They used to be called wood libraries, and they literally would look like books, but the pages were not made of paper. They were made of a page of mahogany and a page of teak and a page of sapelli and a page of so on. And they would have some neat thing. And, it, and the UK, the English empire, what they wanted to do was to say, what are the economic value? So they built these enormous resources to try to understand how could we use cork or how could we use balsa wood and what sort of balsa wood? Are there 20 different sorts? And what we're doing, back to another question you asked, the real excitement of this is we're repeating all of that work, but now we're turning it around the other way. Now we're turning it around to say we can protect those resources uh, and we know identify it. But we need to have a geolocated sample, which means longitude, latitude for every sample. So... Um, and why is that? Why do we need that? Because we need to build a database that's got, so we, we represent statistically every reference that we take against another reference for its location so that we, we build statistical maps of what, for example, uh, Thailand looks like or what Gabon looks like for one species. We, we built a database of a Kume for Gabon and we know statistically what it looks like uh, in terms of geography. Uh, we can even do the new ways we're doing now is to do predictive analysis. So we can predict where between two locations that we have a sample, what does the distance look like between? What will the signature look like? And we can predict. And we've tested that and it works. But back to your back to the point about well, ISO archive is that you could take a supply chain where you don't have a database. And you could say, if the supply chain says all of this supply is coming from one place, 
for the next year, we can take a sample every month or every consignment, whatever the choice is, could be every week. Don't analyze it, but we tell the supply chain we've done that. And we will expect all of the signatures of that to be the same because they're telling us it all comes from the same place. So then what we could do is take at random, say, five samples from early in the year to middle of the year to the late of the year. We would expect them all to have the same signature. And if they do, then there's congratulations and champagne to all of the partisans of our supply chain. And if they're not, well, now there's got to be some questions as why they're outliers, why the signatures, if they're all claiming to come from the same location, why are we seeing a disparity of those signatures? Mm-hmm. And just to get back to some of the, you know, the geo-referenced geolocation is that we have worked with the University of Tennessee, the World Forest ID Group and FSC has worked with the University of Tennessee to develop a phone app where we go to the site where we collect the wood samples. And we use the app to register the information on the species, the tree, all the information around it, take pictures and get the location to generally within 8 to 16 meters. We have used this uh, in the in the Amazon, in Gabon, Solomon Islands, and PNG, and it works offline, uh, and it, it's worked every time. And it's really exciting because one of the things we want to do is work with the certification bodies and their auditors to be able to go collect at harvest sites. And with the app, it makes it really easy. And we think within that, you know, we've shown that you can collect, if you're at the tree, if you're at the harvest site, you can collect a sample within 15 minutes um, and register it into the app and then um, upload that information that's then uploaded into the World Forest ID database. Mm-hmm. And that uh, scan or that logging in the app, is that then connected to something else? Like how would you pair that wood sample up with, with, uh, with that instance in the app? So one of the things the app does do is it scans barcodes. So we send out samples. One of the reasons, you know, those who are collecting samples need to be trained, such as FSC, you know, FSC certification body auditors. They need to be trained. They have the sample kits, which have barcodes, and that is recognized by the phone app. So then you just automatically you read the barcode on the sample pack. And that registers automatically, so it's aligned with the sample. So when the sample gets to Kew Gardens, um, the data is there, and it's confirmed that the, the 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 ID matches the record that's been uploaded into the World Forest ID database. When we set the project up, um, one of the things we decided was that the trusted partners, one of the criteria on the checklist for their admission to collect samples, is they have to be ready to be. Uh, trained and FSC are the leading training organization because you are the current experts in collecting samples. Uh, and also, they must submit a plan. Where are you going? Um, and then we issue a set of uh, predetermined or rather pre logged uh, uh, numbers, World Forest ID IDs that are going to go on the sample bag so that we know which samples come from where. It's a bit like uh, the ID on a banknote. So we can issue them and we can say, well, we've got 50 samples of bags have gone to Gabon. We will expect and we know that they come back. And this is because we think there might be some bad players in time who will say, well, I can create a barcode. They create a barcode. But when we see that barcode in our system, we will know that that barcode was not issued by us. Or it might have been issued for Brazil, but why is it appearing in somewhere else, in Vietnam, for example? So we have a very nice track of the sampling. And we, in fact, have a very robust chain of custody for the sampling. And then what's going to happen is that when uh, Q receive it, the sample goes into quarantine, they log it. 
the uh, would anatomist confirm that the species is correct? Sometimes it's not, and sometimes we have wonderful taxonomy arguments about the genera. Uh, within the genera, uh, what, have we got it right? Then a subsample or subsamples are created. Some go to a laboratory in the US for uh, a, a new technology called DART, which is a, an identification technology. And we get a sample as well, all from the same sample. And what's going to happen is that uh, a database has been built, a separate database, which will hold our results. So this app that, that Phil was describing that was built by the University of Tennessee, which has the locations, that will be linked eventually uh, this summer, summer 2020, to a database that's been built by the University of Connecticut, and that will hold the data uh, such that we can link our results from analysis and the results from other analysis to the original sample and the location it came from. There's going to be some strong security in that. And the end users are probably going to get an answer to say your product is true to a destination or not. They're not going to have free access in the way that we were talking about before to see where the teak is or where the, the rosewood is or whatever it would be. They're not going to see those locations. Mm -hmm. This is a, a very exciting project, um, and, and it sounds uh, complicated and yet uh, really well worked out. Dividing such a sample into three, like how big of a piece of timber would you need to be able to to conduct all of those tests? So there was a very exciting moment at the beginning of this. When we set out, we were like innocent children, and we thought, how hard is it to go and collect samples? There's these xylaria, these wood collections. They've done it for hundreds of years. Let's just go and collect it. And in fact, the first project, we decided to have one species in one country, and, and they were going to be really simple. And the species was Quercus alba, white oak from the USA, and it was going to be collected by FSC and the US Forestry Service. And what they did is they went to harvest sites, and they got a guy with a chainsaw to cut what the Americans call a cookie, a cross-section, probably an inch thick, and maybe uh, 200, 300 centimeters across. The shipping cost alone became a frightener. Also, it's about 100 times more material than you need for any laboratory analysis. And Q got pretty upset because they said, we're going to have to get the builders out to build a new building if you're going to send us thousands of these. And when, of course, we asked the scientists and our chemists in our company, which I'm embarrassed to say we didn't do after we'd finished this product, we said, well, how much sample do you need? Well, most of these labs want 20 grams tops. The DART project in the US requires a toothpick size sample. Uh, so what we've done is we have decided, uh, we tried all the different technologies. There's a, a device called an increment borer, which is like a, a corkscrew, but a hollow corkscrew. You can get a very good sample and it will go a long way into a tree, but it's hard work. And in some of the hard trees, it's very hard work and you wouldn't want to collect a lot of samples with it, but it works. Uh, then there's electric drills. Um, but the trouble with electric drills is that they need electricity and uh, battery charges in the middle of a rainforest are not easy to come by. So in the end, we just kind of said, we've got to invent something. So we did. And we invented a device called a Pickering Punch. Pickering because it was invented in a town uh, here in Yorkshire called Pickering. And essentially, it's a bit like an apple corer, but made of very high-grade steel. It's a tube. It's 18 millimeters in diameter. And it's 125 millimeters long, and it's made of a steel with a certain end on it that you can thread on, and you can hit it with a hammer. And foresters know how to swing an axe, which was one of the guesses we made. And if they can swing an axe, can they swing a small hammer? Uh, you then bang it into a tree, and if you, anybody's ever worked on a car or an engineering workshop, there's a thing called a slide hammer. 
which is a hammer in reverse. And essentially, it's a shaft with a bob weight on it. You screw that into the punch that we banged into a tree, and you, you bang it, hammer it, but in reverse, outwards, and it pulls out. And so we had Phil and his team experiment with it, and we've gone through several iterations. We've patented it, and we've made about 300 of them, and they're distributed all over the world. And the best person to ask about it, really, I guess, is Phil, because he's used it. Yeah, and and we yeah we have tested in the field, and you know I've I've been used it in Papua New Guinea. We've had people use it in uh, in Gabon and and in Peru. And what I think is uh, we you know we're working with forest managers, uh, indigenous people in the Solomon Islands is they really like it because it is sort of appropriate technology. It's really easy to use. It takes some work, but it works, um, and it gets out a piece of of wood about the size of your thumb, which is what, what is needed. And so we can, you know, generally, as I said, it's about 15 minutes to get three samples out of a tree and register it and put it into the packaging for, for, for distribution to Kew Gardens. So, um, now we now we're expanding that work and you know we've collected hundreds of samples uh, across the globe um probably approaching over a thousand uh samples that have gone to queue and and have shown that we can actually work from from the forest and get the samples to queue and have uh basically i think around 95 percent or higher um are viable samples they come in conditions that are that are um you know they don't come with mold and 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 uh, damage in that sense um they come in condition that can be used by the scientists and that can be um referenced to the exact location of the forest mm -hmm. So I guess the Pickering Punch is for when you want to take a sample from a living tree. What if you were at a harvest site? Would you then need to use the Pickering Punch too? No. So that's some of the things we've worked on. And and, and absolutely, um, when we've gone to harvesting sites, um, you know, generally, especially when, when an audit occurs, it's a requirement to go to a harvest site. Um, generally, you go with a, someone there has a chainsaw or you, you ask someone to have it to bring the chainsaw and where where something's been recently harvested you can you can take out a chunk from the stump uh, it takes even less time to get a little little some size piece of wood uh, from a stump so what we do is really it's saying what is you know you can use the pickering punch if you because if it's non-destructive it doesn't kill the tree but if you're gonna if you're gonna fell a tree um, you can still use the picking punch, but if it's easier to do it with a chainsaw, go ahead and do it. And if there's other techniques, we always want to learn about those and see if we can, you know, we are continually want to improve and make this more streamlined. So, so that's one of the things we work with. We've started to work with auditors and some of the certification bodies to say, well, try this. Let's see, does it work? Can you, can you make it work in the field? Can you make it work as part of an audit. And that's something over the next year we're going to, once the COVID situation allows people to go back in the forests, um, auditors and, and others, then we'll, we'll continue to work on streamlining and making this whole process uh, more efficient and easier to do. Mm -hmm. So I can tell from the both of your voices that you're quite excited about this project. Uh, and I'll ask this question of both of you, but Roger, if we start with you, what makes you most excited about this project? To be honest, this is the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. I think it's partly because if you uh, think about Venn diagrams with all the complexity of the world and the enormous complexity of timber and the issues to do with climate change and deforestation and all the degradation of uh, forest communities and the complexity and the care that everybody has for that. 
and yet there's this enormous problem. What we have found is that World Forest ID fits very neatly as a gap that was waiting there to be filled, which is how, if you've got technologies at work, and of course we're only one, stabilized steps is one of a whole army of technologies, and there's going to be more coming along. And they're all comparative technologies. And we've had these libraries, these xylarium, but they're the wrong sort. They're missing something. They've either got the wrong sort of wood or it doesn't have a geolocation, which is the usual problem. All you've got to do all is to say, well, we're going to fill that gap. We are going to be that piece of the Venn diagram, which is we're going to collect a new type of sample. It's going to be fit for analysis. uh, And then we're going to generate something so that the wider world like audit bodies, but also like enforcement and also the timber trade, can have a resource which will be freely available so that the actual reference data will be free to them to use. They don't have to buy it. They have to pay for the analysis of their test sample. But in terms of the resource, the library of data, it's free. And everybody we've talked to from every stage who understands those bigger stories way more than we do have said, oh, yes, this piece of the jigsaw has been missing. And so that's what's been fun. We've genuinely been pioneering in a way that you'd never think was necessary, but it very much is. And we're not finished. There's a lot more to do. We're thinking that the collection we're building is a bit like pixels on a screen. And there are trillions of pixels really out there, but we've only done a few. But what we have done to enormous satisfaction is that we've discovered that we've got a blueprint that works. And what we now need to do is to scale it. We need participants, we need funding, and we need this to grow. And we need to pay attention to those species and those locations that are most at risk. And that's where we're at. That's the next piece. So the next bit of this, well, actually, there is another bit of this, if I may just quick finish. There is another bit with this is that there is a great interest to build capacity, uh, laboratory capacity in other countries. Why can't other countries do what we do? So that's what we're, we're doing now. So the next big part of this is called ICCB, which stands for in-country capacity building. And there are a number of funding bodies are very interested to see if uh, Western developed technologies could be uh, delivered into developing countries. And we're very much part of that. So that's the next whole big part of the world that we're, we're now adventuring on. What about you, Phil? What makes you excited? Yeah, well, what makes me really excited is, as you know, Loa, maybe not all listeners, I've been involved in FSC almost 23 years. And it's been so exciting to be part of the FSC and see it grow and and achieve what it is in certification. But what's really exciting about this is that, you know, at at first it was like, well, this is going to really benefit FSC. This is a great thing if we can collect wood samples from FSC certified forests. But more and more as we go forward with this is we recognize that this is a way that FSC can contribute to combating illegal logging. You know, we're all about, you know, certification standards and recognizing responsible forestry, the best of the best practices out there. We really do very little directly to combat the worst of the worst, illegal logging. And with this, this is a way that the enforcement agencies and others can can address illegal logging, that we can identify wood products that are coming from illegal harvests, and that we can also then recognize where it's coming from an FSC certified forest. So that's really exciting for me. And I think another part that, you know, I've been really uh, fortunate to be able to go into the field and, and do some of this work is to see the excitement of the forest managers. They really get this. They love it because it's, you know, as a forester myself, it's like, what better than actually going into the forest and doing forestry, you know, hands-on forestry. They really love it and they really see the importance of it. And they, they really are excited also to contribute 
contribute in more than just selling their products or managing their forests, that they can contribute in other ways. And those those are what makes me really excited about this and, and you know, optimistic on the re- direction it's going. And, and I'd like to add, there's something very important. Structurally, the way that uh, analysis works is that it's one of the first, if not the first, taking all of the different technologies, demand side interventions. So if you think about it, the work that FSC does is uh, analysis primarily of audit and certification on the supply side. Let's go and see what's going on from forest through to processing to the manufacture to distribution. And what you hope to do is arrive at the retail side with a product that has a, a history on it, which is documented in some way, maybe summarized in some simple statement, but behind that is a body of data. And it's been pretty good. Uh, it's fallible and it's complex. What's glorious about analysis is that we can go into the demand side at retail, which is what we're doing now with brands who sell furniture and flooring. And we can say this flooring is true. You saying it comes from Gabon and it does. Or we can say, we're sorry to tell you that this white oak piece of furniture, which is claiming to be European white oak, is in fact Quercus Mongolica and has a signature which is very typical for Russia Far East. And it's very illegal. And that ability to turn the tap on illegal logging at the retail end potentially has the opportunity to get consumers interested in asking when they go into a shop, please, can you tell me where this furniture was harvested? Not who manufactured it, not where it was turned into a piece of furniture, but where it was actually grown, because somebody somewhere in the world should know that. And if we think one of the real excitements, if we could get the retail world, the consumers, us, to do the same with furniture and flooring and building materials that we do with food, then we're really onto something. And these technologies are the tap that could begin to turn the tap on uh, illegal logging that is uh, essentially laundered through conventional supply chains. Mm -hmm. And if I was a company out there right now saying, oh my God, I want that, could I go and get involved in this project? Absolutely, absolutely. They can either contact us through straight to AgriSlab on our website, agrieslab.com, or they can go through worldforestid.org. That's the database for World Forest ID. And obviously they mm-hmm. can contact us through the FSC as well. Um, so so there's a number of ways, but I think World Forest ID specifically, if you, anybody's interested, is that's the best place to go. Yep. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and we welcome, you know, we really want welcome anyone who wants to participate in all the different ways from, from just in the sense of supporting to actually saying, I want to look at my products to actually the forest managers who might be interested in, in participating as well. Thank you very much, guys. This is a very exciting project. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to following it as, as it moves along. That's it. I hope you are now left as excited as Roger and I am. I truly see possibilities for this project to change the way we do due diligence and catch illegal timber being sold as something it isn't. If you want to get in touch with us or follow our work, I encourage you to join our LinkedIn group. It's called FSC Digital Innovation and it's open for everyone. You can always also get in touch with me on digitalinput at fsc.org. I'm Laura Worm and this was Forest for the Future.